Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Matthew Stout, CEO and founder of Applied VR, a virtual reality therapeutics platform that's raised over $70 million in funding. Matthew, thanks for chatting with me today. Brett, thanks for having me here. Looking forward to the conversation. No problem. Super excited chat. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah. So very briefly, I'm uh, originally from the Midwest, though I've lived in a lot of different places uh, in my life, which I think has been actually beneficial for me as I've been building the professional side of, of my life. But I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. And so even when I was a little kid, I was uh, causing havoc at school, creating bubblegum empires where I was selling things to uh, to kids that they couldn't get access to. And so when I ended up coming out of college, I went the uh, traditional route of going after investment banking and ultimately private equity. But I'd always wanted to get back to my roots of wanting to build things. And so after I came out of B school, I did my first startup. This was back in 99. And I, uh, it was the original idea of it, quite frankly, was Dropbox before Dropbox was a thing. It, we, we called it a virtual hard drive. And we built that thing up and probably crashed it into the ground, although we lasted longer than other companies. This is you know, the original dot-com, dot-bomb days. And it was a lot of learnings came out of that. But then uh, I ended up doing a few other things in the entrepreneurial world. Uh, first was a bit of a safe harbor when I went to McDonald's Corp and I was an entrepreneur in residence there. Came out of that. And the last thing I built was you ever go to a gas station in America, with the exception of Oregon and New Jersey, and you see those terrible flat screens that advertise crap that you don't want or need. That was my company. And I uh, started that back in about the middle of around 2005, built it up over a 10-year period and sold it and learned a lot along the way. Wow. That's awesome. That's good to know. Next time I'm at a gas station, I'll be, I'll be looking for this. Yeah. Sadly, that's the scourge. So I felt like I had to make amends for my, my period doing that. Although I, I loved doing it. <laughs> and I want to ask a little bit about that first company there in, you know, what would you say? It was 99 to 2001. So, wow, you're like right in the heart of dot-com boom and, and dot-com bust. What did you learn from that entire experience? So that was my first time truly branching out on my own. And honestly, I, I feel like you learn as much, if not more, from the things that don't go right versus the things that do go right. And in this case here, I talked about that early vision that we had around this virtual hard drive. And I think one of the key things I learned coming out of that is because then we morphed and we pivoted and we started to pursue other things that sounded hot and cool at the time. We ended up kind of going down this path of being a city search for universities, if you will. We thought about it from a customer acquisition perspective and whatnot, but we completely broke away from that original idea of a virtual hard drive. And, you know, sometimes you got to come up with an idea that that's fits with the right time and space and market need. This was definitely well before its time, but I do think we kind of got caught up in that trying to chase what was hot and sexy in the moment versus saying we have a true vision and, and now let's that we may take different paths and have to pivot along the way to achieve that vision but keep true to that original vision 
And so that was, I think, one big thing that I learned. And out of that one was, you know, making sure you stay true to yourself and, and don't lose focus. A few other questions that we like to ask, and the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick. First one is what founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? I actually, I think a lot about that and I'm going to frame this two different ways because I think about sort of what is my connection to them or something that they've done that, that I really connect with or conversely, there's something in their DNA that I just really appreciate. So on the one end, a name that most people will know is Tony Shea. And I, one of the things I was, I was listening to an interview of him on how I built this and he was being interviewed, you know, he had his big exit from Zappos and the interviewer was asking him, you know, so I understand he only owned like one or two pair of shoes and, and he lived, still lived in this little Airstream or something. And the comment or the answer that Tony Shea gave to this thing was, I'm a collector of experiences, not material things. And that really resonated with me. It sort of framed the way that I've always viewed my life is that I much prefer going out and living the world and capturing the experiences of things around me. And one of my things that I'm on a mission in my life is to go visit every country in the world. I've been to 105. I use the UN as my marker, although I haven't fully accepted South Sudan, just they're too new. <laughs> the, um, so I've been to 105, right? And the thing that I always think about are all of the experiences that I have collected over time, experiences in terms of places that I've gone, people that I've met. And to me, that's what really rewards my life or infuses my life with passion. Another one, very, probably very few people have heard of is a guy named Ben Lewis. And the, uh, this guy, Ben Lewis, he probably doesn't even know that I would say this about him. He's someone I've gotten to know and as part of my journey here, he was a, a little bit behind us in what he was doing. He was going to go down the same path in VR, trying to do something from a medical perspective. But he is, in my mind, that definition of a scrappy entrepreneur. Where, I mean, you know, I don't want to get into too much of the detail behind this because I don't want to breach any confidentiality from him, but, you know, he ran into a lot of challenges along the way and was very close multiple times to not knowing if there was going to be a tomorrow. But every time he had that fortitude, that grit and that resilience to find a way forward. And those are things that I think are rare. And entrepreneurs, true entrepreneurs, to be able to do that, you have to have that type of mindset and mentality and then never give up. And in fact, he actually just ended up having an exit of his company to big health. So I was just, I'm super excited for him. I'm super happy for him because I was kind of with him along or part of that journey. And uh, so I just love to see that. I think it's always fun to have a front row seats to you know, the behind the scenes of a company. You, know, you read the headlines in the media and you know, they've raised all this money or they got acquired for this much. And like, it just all sounds great. And then you actually know these people and you know, talk to these people and are working closely with them or you're just talking to them a lot. And like, you know, the hell that they went through to reach that point. And I think you have a lot more respect and you can you know, see those behind the scenes stories and events. That is absolutely correct. Now, with all of that travel that you've done and because you've collected experiences, I have to imagine that you're not just like sitting at the Four Seasons, hanging out, and that's your experience. I'd have to imagine there's been some crazy experiences, maybe some adventures in there. What's like the craziest experience you've collected so far? All right. So I'll, I'll give the way I talk about this and something that's actually really important to me in my life. And as we think about the values in both my own personal life and in our company, you know, I've been, I've had the fortune of going to some of the wealthiest countries in the world. 
in some of the poorest countries in the world. I've met some of the wealthiest people in the world. I've met some of the poorest people in the world. And this is the only thing I ever get on my soapbox about, by the way, is, you know, the one thing that I have experienced across all of this, all these different types of people that I've met all around the world is if you take the time to meet them where they are without preconceived judgment and just listen and bring a curious mind, you find that there is so much more that connects us to each other in this world that divides us. And again, this is my little soapbox here. The thing that truly breaks my heart right now in America is I see the divisiveness on the left and the right. And we talk about her side, his side, my versus my side. And I feel like we've lost the capacity for empathy. And that to me is, it's so important as we, especially when we think about a world where you have generative AI coming up, it's going to be really disruptive. You know, the importance of empathy has never been, been greater. So, but in terms of the experience and I actually won't, this is going to be a, one of the more unique experiences. So I, through a set of circumstances, though my travel initially was supposed to take me to India, I ended up accidentally in Burma. And as I was going around, I was with a, with a girl that I was having to see at the time. And, and we were just off the beaten path in this little village and just checking out some of the, the temples that were there. And this old man comes up and he starts trying to talk to us in extremely broken English. And at first, we don't know if he's trying to sell us something or follow us around or ask for money or whatever. And he keeps coming up and, and trying to get our attention. He wants to show us these certain things and he's trying to explain as best he can. And at some point, he asked us to follow him, follow him, follow him, because he kept trying to ask us something. We didn't know what it was. And we finally go back and he brings us to his home. And he's, you know, it's, just, it's a hut on stilts, lifted up. And we go up and we go inside. And remember, this is Burma, where there's a lot of, you know, sort of encouraged to rat on each other, if you will, and, and to call each other out if you're breaking the rules under the, the junta there. And so he pushes this one chair away, pulls back this uh, rice mat and blows off some dust and opens up this hole in the ground that's been clearly hidden. And he pulls out this dilapidated, beaten up old dictionary. It was a Burmese English dictionary that like, you literally would feel as if you touched it, the pages might disappear on you. And so he's scrambling through trying to find it. And he finds this one word in Burmese and it was dinner. And what he was doing was he was, he was trying to invite us to dinner with his wife because he wanted to show that he cared about us. And he would keep saying along the way, he would, he would say, America, good, America, good. But I'm not bad, but I'm not bad. That was the one that he actually could say very clearly. And it was just so touching to me that this guy who didn't have anything in the world really, but wanted to share what Lily had with us because he wanted to make a connection. And it was so touching. And we unfortunately didn't, weren't able to do the dinner with him. But as we, we spend a little bit of time, as we get up, we get ready to go. The part I feel really bad about is, you know, he wanted to share some, definitely wanted to share something with us. And so he runs over and he grabs his wife's purse. And it's this, I mean, probably a 10, 15 cent type purse that has these you know, plastic beads on it and whatever. And he takes them, he dumps it all out. Everything that was inside, dumps it out. And she's like, what are you doing? You know, going at him and he brings it to us to give it to us as a gift. And I, it was just, again, this guy had nothing, but what little he had, he wanted to share with us. He wanted that connection. And those are the types of moments and the experiences that I'll always remember in my life, no matter what my, my lot in life is. So 
That's amazing. I love that answer. And it's, you know, I love hearing those types of stories as well. I feel like you could have just told me like, oh, you know, skydiving in Dubai or, you know, some random adventure like that. But I like when guests answer that and, you know, and go deep on their answers. So appreciate you sharing that story. That's so cool and so inspiring and just awesome to hear there's humans like that in the world. Yeah. Now, uh, flip side of that is there is a place in Oman. I haven't been there yet. Uh, so this is on my list of when I, when I get a chance to go over there and knock that country off. But there is a place you can stay that is at the base of a bluff. And you have two ways of getting down. You either take this ATV that can take about an hour, or you literally run off the bluff connected to a guy on a uh, hang glider and you hang glide down. <laughs> so uh, that one would definitely be on my list of something I got to do. But again, for me, truly, it's always about the, the connection to people because that's what I think and really empowers our lives. Yeah, that's amazing. Now let's switch gears and, and let's dive a little bit deeper into the company. So can you just start us off with maybe talking about the problem that you solve? Yeah. So it's the really what we're trying to address is first and foremost is the pain epidemic that I would say is not only in, in America, but quite frankly, on a global basis. I know we hopefully people understand, obviously, the big issue we've had with opioids here in America and the epidemic. And by the way, we, we like to think that this opioid epidemic is a bit behind us, but we continue to set annual records in terms of the number of deaths from it. But where we're focused, that's partly connected to acute pain, but it's also connected to chronic pain. And the problem that we're ultimately going after is the chronic pain epidemic. And just give you a little bit of a sense of the scope and size of it. So in the U.S., there are about 100 million sufferers of chronic pain, about 1.5 billion around the world. And in the U.S., we spend about $650 billion a year trying to address it. And the question is, why? Why do we spend so much money trying to address this thing? And by the way, from a, a, the, the size of it, just to put in comparison, it is bigger than the combination of diabetes, cancer, and heart disease. So it is absolutely massive. In fact, I think the CDC just came out and said it's the number one diagnosed condition topping all others right now. So it's a major issue. Again, going back to the why. Well, the challenge is that we have always viewed chronic pain as if it's acute pain. So we think about it from the physiology of it. That means we give people NSAIDs, things like Tylenol, uh, Advil, then we give them opioids, and then we give them injections, and then we give them implants, and then we give them surgery, surgery, surgery. But we don't fundamentally treat it for the condition that it is. It's something that we call a biopsychosocial condition. What that means is it's not only about the physiology of the pain, but it's also about the comorbidities of depression, anxiety, catastrophization, sleeplessness, and that gets exacerbated by social isolation. You think about these patients, what's, what's happening is the pain is migrating from the acute centers of the brain down to the more the emotional centers of the brain. And yet we have only traditionally tried to address it by focusing on the physiology. We're only addressing a part of that. If you're not addressing it holistically, then you're never going to solve the problem. Now, the good news in all of this is we recognize this. We finally have, have started to truly understand what's driving chronic pain and what we need to do to address it. And in fact, for the first time in 50 years, we've updated our definition of chronic pain. And we actually are now calling for as first line treatment what we call integrated pain management. That means it's going to be not only trying to address the physiology side of it and the ways we talked a little bit about, 
but also trying to take integrated pain management that includes the, the psychosocial side of this. So concepts like cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance commitment therapy, et cetera. This is where we run into the second challenge of this whole thing. So what we need to do, but we don't have the capacity in America to deliver on this on a scaled basis. You know, one of the numbers that we've seen is for if you're everyone that should get it, there's only one provider of integrated pain treatment for every, call it 50 to, to 100,000 sufferers that are out there. And the wait list to be able to get in to see a pain psychologist can be, you know, six months and beyond. In addition to that, you've got the great resignation, which kind of started during the COVID. You've got practitioner burnout that's occurring in, in healthcare. And so the supply is, is shrinking, right? There's 700,000 professionals have left the industry, and that's only going to get worse here over the next several years. And so there's this gap in care, this gap in access is getting worse and worse and worse. And it's, it's, so it's how do we actually deliver on a scalable basis true integrated pain treatment for patients. So that's the problem that we're going after. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Now let's talk about the solution. So I, I put on the headset and, and what happens? So I think it's important to take a step back and understand how VR works and why it is uniquely equipped to address this. Because there is, you know, we, we like to talk about VR as, as truly a new category of medicine that's been 30 years in the making. So going back to that, where this really all started was back in the early 1990s, an innovative researcher at the University of Washington guy named Hunter Hoffman was trying to help burn victims go through debridement. Now, debridement is when you're literally, it's the cleaning of the burn wound. So you have the raw exposed nerves, and it is one of the most painful things you'll, you'll ever go through. And this is back early nineties before we had the opioid epidemic. And even then, and that's what we, by the way, they would use traditionally is they would use opioids as that analgesic to help through that acute moment, right? When they're cleaning the wound. And opioids are only effective on about 30% of the population and, by the way, have terrible side effects. So in this case of acute pain, right, this is going to be different than chronic, but in case of the acute pain, what he recognized is that our brains are basically processors and it's about interceding the signal. So what happens is, let's say you cut your finger, the signal goes from the, from the wound through the central nervous system up to the acute pain receptors of the brain that lights it up. You feel your pain. So his, his insight was, well, if our brains are basically processors, what if we flood the neural pathway with alternate signal? What if we put them in a VR headset and we engage them and interact with them and flood that pathway with an alternate signal, we can actually get them to feel less pain. So he did a test of control. The test was VR back in the early nineties. The control was opioids and he was then measured it both on a subjective basis. So the patient reporting back how much pain was, was reduced from their own perception, as well as actually using an fMRI to measure how lit up the pain receptors were in the brain. And he demonstrated on both a subjective and an objective basis, the fact of the potential for VR to outperform an opioid, right? The power of a pixel over a molecule, absolutely fascinating early insight on the acute pain side, launched hundreds of studies, all validating that same insight. 
The challenge you had in this case, though, was the technology, you know, weighed 50 pounds, tethered to 50 machines, cost $50,000. And so it was confined, if you will, to the laboratory, to the uh, world of, isn't that interesting? And so, you know, fast forward to where we are now, and I still think we're only at version, call it 1.5, and maybe when the Apple Vision Pro comes out, it'll be 2.0, what the future will be. But it's just, it's amazing how far these have come just in the last couple of years. And so what that means for us is, you know, when we started building, developing this, we ended up partnering with a woman named Beth Darnall, probably the, the top pain psychologist in the world out of Stanford. That woman is absolutely incredible and does more by 9 a.m. than I think I can do an entire week. Puts me to shame, but true, it's been great. We've been working with her since about 2018 and developing this. And with chronic pain, to contrast it with the acute pain, it's not necessarily about solving the pain, but it's really trying to address that, take that holistic approach and teach the person's skills on how to manage their pain on a day-to-day basis so that they can lead a a better quality of life. And so what we did in partnering with Beth on this, we took a lot of evidence-based approaches and developed an eight-week therapy that the patient is supposed to use once a day, every day, but we only need to do it about on average six minutes a day. And we teach essential skills over the course of these eight weeks. Each week is a different theme that we have. And we do a lot of reinforcement of of the previous week's themes so that when they walk away from this, we don't want them living their life in the goggles and the headset, as we say, but we want to give them these skills that they can go and do something, live live on their own and and be able to control their central nervous system, if you will, the self-regulation and be able to manage their own chronic pain so they can have that better quality of life. And I'll give you one example of something that we do in there. So we're big believers in trying to use the, basically your, your own bio data, if you will, to help drive the experience. And so we did this thing where we were able to, to build up some patented technology around this to capture your breath. And what we do is we put you in, in the uh, headset and there you're in this scene with a uh, bit of a desert scene of this dilapidated tree in front of you that looks like it's essentially dead. And then as you start breathing at the right pace with the right consonants on this, it actually starts to breathe life into that world around you. And as you continue to breathe into this space, you can actually see your own breath coming into the space around you. You're actually bringing life to the world around you. So it gives you that sense of agency, but also connects you to what's going on in your body. And you start to build this beautiful tree. And then the tree starts to essentially almost breathe at your own pace. And it's, it's fascinating when you talk to some patients afterward, anecdotally, you know, you'll hear some of the patients talk about when I was in the garden doing something, I had a pain flare and I would remember that tree that I brought life to, and I would start to breathe and I could visualize it in the moment. And so it's really powerful when you are able to, to get the patient to go through the, the process and then see the impact that it can have on their lives. Are there any non-believers of this approach or critics to say, you know, that's that's not how we can solve this public health crisis or that's not how we can you know, solve this? Are, are there any people like that? Well, there's always going to be questioners, right? The one thing I'll say is, you know, when we started this, one of our early mantras is that we wanted to build an unparalleled body of evidence to demonstrate this. Because anytime you're going to bring something novel into the marketplace, there's always going to be a lot of, of questions around it. Is it real? You know, is it VR? Isn't it just a game? And so, or is, you know, shit, can I just download something off the, you know, off the web and, and use that? And so we've really been extremely methodical in building a body of evidence 
that is that can answer. You're never going to answer all the questions for all the people, but over time, and it does take time, unfortunately, in our crazy healthcare world, we ultimately want this to be a part of standard of care. And you know, and for us, we have this much bigger vision. And we again, we talk about this fact that we're creating this new category of medicine that's been around for 30 years. We're just putting it, all the pieces together to be able to you know, have that commercialization model that can get it into the hands of those that need it most. But for us, the most important thing is the seeing is believing in VR, right? And, and so people can challenge us. And by the way, this isn't right for everybody. You're never going to find any medicine that is universally successful. So it's about finding, you know, making sure you're getting it to the right patients that are going to benefit most from this. But yeah, you're, you're always going to have naysayers. Who stands to be disrupted here then? Is it like the, uh, <laughs> like the maker of Oxycontin? Is that who's going to hate you here for disrupting your, your approach? Or who's being disrupted? That's a great question. The way that we think about this is, again, going back to that concept of it's not one size fits all. And, you know, from an FDA perspective, so we are the, the first and only that has been approved by the FDA to actually treat a form of chronic pain, in our case, our labels for chronic low back pain. But we think about this as one of the tools that a patient's going to have. And, and ideally, what you'll be able to do is you'll be able to slow down or eliminate the need for that patient to run into the emergency department because they can't control a pain flare. Or obviously we want to get to a world where, where we're not prescribing, you know, much of any on the Oxycontin and the opioid side. There is a role for opioids, by the way. We're not saying that there's not, but let's make sure that that's not the first thing we do. That should be one of the last things that you do when you're thinking about who, you know, what's the right approach. So, you know, the idea here is, and we do think about healthcare utilization. So to your point about who gets disrupted, you know, ideally for us, you, you would see this used earlier in that patient's trajectory. And that means potentially your savings down the line are going to be the elimination of, or reduction in terms of number of surgeries that are required, the number of procedures potentially that are, that are required for a patient. And then also the continued shopping, if you will, because what you'll see is some some pain patients are trying to find relief. They're going to go from one doc to another to another. And ideally, if they can you know, go to a doc that's able to be more integrative, then it can keep that patient there longer because they're finding that they actually has a solution or a care pathway that, that's working for them. Whenever we're talking about emerging technologies or frontier technologies, at least what I see out there a lot is yeah, it's a lot of startups with yeah, a cool idea and they've said, you know, okay, we have this technology and we have this problem. If we solve this, it's, it's going to be massive. I want to highlight here that you guys aren't just, you know, talking about this technology and talking about this problem. You're having people really use it, right? So the numbers I see on the website, 60,000 patients have been immersed so far. You're in 1,500 plus homes and 200 plus hospitals in 10 countries. So this is not just at the R&D phase, right? This is something that's actively being used by patients. I do want to put some clarity around those numbers that you threw out. So when we fed, I think this is you know, how we think about how ultimately we came to market. Remember earlier on, we talked about a vision. So when we first started Applied VR back in 2015, we had a vision. The vision is that, and really understanding that for you know too long, I believe in America, we have forced patients to go and find care versus bringing the care to where they are. And that's when you think about a tech-enabled world, how can we use technology to, to better help our patients you know, where they are, meet them where they are versus forcing them to come find the care, right? And so the idea, our long-term vision is that we ultimately want to be able to have a headset in every home in America and around the world. And this becomes a healthcare hub, if you will, to deliver this next generation medicine, not just in the world of chronic pain, but 
you know, there's tons of clinical evidence that can be used to treat a variety of conditions ranging from PTSD to anxiety, depression, uh, obesity, stress, et cetera. And you can also use this for group therapy. You can use this for one-to-one. And so it really can become this health hub that we talk about. But when we started, that idea was very far in the future because the headsets at that point in time, on the one hand, you either had a headset that was the Oculus, that was the Quest that was connected to, I think it was Quest, that was connected to a laptop, which completely unscalable. Or the other extreme was Google Cardboard, where you'd put your phone in this little cardboard thing and be like a viewfinder and you'd want to throw up after about 30 seconds. And so how we started was we said, we know the technology is the friction in this whole equation. We know the technology is only going to get better and better and better, but it's not ready today to go into the home. And so we started off by saying, all right, we've got to build credibility. We've got to build our body of evidence. We've got to drive innovation and we've got to build our brand. And so we literally picked out the top 20 hospitals in America and said, we're going to do something with each and every one of those hospitals. And that started us off in the world where we were limited by the technology. With that point, the best in class for mobile was a Samsung gear plugged into a headset. And we used that as our, our initial entry to build those things that I talked about. And we went out and we were started to sell the SaaS model into hospitals and everywhere else. But that was all of that was always meant as a way to get us ultimately when the headset was to the point where you could do something in the home that we would start to go into the home and we would shift. So we actually don't do anything in hospitals anymore. We don't do anything. You know, back then it was more of a wellness product because we hadn't gone through FDA. And so now the product we have is for in-home use and it's being self-administered by the patient, right? So now we're finally living up to that product promise about saying that we're, we're empowering the patient in the comfort and convenience of their own home to be able to, to use this. And so where we are in sort of our life cycle here, and by the way, all of that work that we did helped inform everything from user experience, what worked from a, a patient perspective or engagement, what worked for HCPs, what did they care about? How do we continue to build our name and brand? And, and all of that helped us to where we are now. But now we are very squarely focused on, you know, going the prescription route where you get a doctor to write a script it's covered by insurance. And then you know, we, we send it to, to the patient in their home. And when we talk about those numbers about being in 1500 homes, I think the number is now well north of that. And that's how many devices, you know, we've had a lot of scars in our backs of devices we've sent into the home and what works, what doesn't work. And so that know-how is incredibly important because when you're thinking about building a, or bringing a novel product like this into the marketplace, we talk about the three E's of design. Number one is it's got to be easy to use. I don't care how efficacious it is. I don't care how engaging it is. If it is complicated, if it is hard to use, if there's friction in the equation, the patient's never going to use it. It's going to sit in a corner and gather dust. And we learned a lot of that stuff, by the way, just when we were going into hospitals with our, our wellness version earlier, the stuff that we were doing. And so that's our number one mantra. And we are willing to make some certain trade-offs along the way. That breathing thing that I talked about earlier, we actually started with this idea of being able to use a pulse oximeter attached to your finger, connected to Bluetooth that would use your own heart rate variability to drive the experience inside. And in a laboratory, that is awesome. It is so cool to see it. But you send that into a home to a 55-year-old male, female, whatever, and they got to put a pulse what on their finger? I don't have blue teeth. What are you talking about, right? It's going to fail. And so we used a derivative of that, knowing that in the future, they're just like we have with the iWatch and their sensors built into the iWatch that gives us a heck of a lot of information. The same thing is going to happen on the headsets. 
So ease of use was incredibly important to us. And that's where we learned a lot from all of the different work that we've done. Engagement is the second one. Engagement is incredibly important. Anytime you're looking at therapy and healthcare and quite frankly, it doesn't matter really what it is, whether it be pills or different types of interventions, PT or whatnot, we, the adherence rates are, are pretty bad, even in the world of cancer, where you would think that now it's someone's life is depending on it. And yet still you can see adherence rates that are only at the 50%. And so in this case, we're asking you to do something once a day, every day over an eight week period. So it's got to be engaging. And then the last piece is the efficacy. It obviously has got to make an impact, but if you get the first two, you're going to get the third on this. And so where we are on that commercialization pathway is our first entry channel is actually going into the VA. And when I think about what your product market fit is, the VA for the world of this idea of immersive therapeutics or immersive medicine, I couldn't think of a better entry channel for us. So one, there's about 6 million vets that are suffering from some form of pain. 1.5 million of them are deemed to be uh, moderate to severe pain sufferers. Two is sadly in America, every single day, over 16 vets commit suicide. It's absolutely tragic. The good news, again, we're recognizing that work and the VA is trying to address it and they've made pain and mental health as the top two priorities that they're focused on, which is great. And so now they're trying to find different solutions that can address that. And the good thing about this idea of VR as medicine is that they've actually been one of the earliest adopters of this and testers of this dating back almost as long as when I talked about, you know, this idea of acute pain management, they start off in the world of PTSD and exposure therapy. Today, there's over 120, 170 facilities that are actually using some form of VR as medicine or in the medical capacity. Over a thousand plus, we call them HCPs, healthcare providers are using it on a regular basis. And so the understanding, acceptance, awareness, and adoption is through the roof. And that's really where we, we've just now started in earnest this year when we, we got on contract with them. So, well, we are up on time here, but I want to do one final question or squeeze in one final question. And that question is, what's the vision for the future? Can you just paint a picture for us three to five years from today? What's that big picture vision that you're working towards? What's the company going to look like? And what's that impact going to look like? So I, I talked earlier about this idea of a healthcare hub in the home and probably wouldn't be three years, five years. You have a shot of starting, really starting that, you know, probably more in the eight to 10 year time frame. But this idea that VR immersive therapeutics is now a part of standard of care where you're going to have this in most homes and we've got millions of patients that have either used it or in the process of using it. And we're actually truly making this that standard of care that I, that I talk about so that this becomes one of the first things that a doctor prescribes versus one of the last things, right? We always believe that, you know, start from what is the least invasive that you can do. And this is probably the least invasive that you can do that can actually make an impact. Amazing. I love the vision, love the problem you're solving and, and really love the approach that you've taken here. Now, like I said, we are up on time, so we'll have to wrap. If any founders listening in want to follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this vision, where should they go? Our website, appliedvr.io. I, I, I know we've got LinkedIn. And I know we've got Twitter. I know we've got, I think we got Facebook. But so I'm sure you can, they can find us on any one of those. 
Awesome. Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about what you're building and, and share some of the lessons that you've learned along the way and share some of those personal moments as well. This has been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. I know it's going to be a hit with an audience and really appreciate you making the time for us. Brett, much appreciated. Absolutely love the conversation. I love what you're doing, brother. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 